As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, welcome to the latest edition to Hear That Podcast Ground. Paul Leonard Jr. and Jay Morrison of The Athletic are happy to be with you. I'm happy to be back with Jay. Jay, how are we doing? How was your vacation? It was good. It was some, I didn't go anywhere. Nothing, nothing crazy fun like that. But it was just, it was nice to have some time off. But you know, when you have one of those stay vacations, you have this long list of things you want to get accomplished. And then Sunday night rolls around and it's so depressing that you didn't get any of them done. Yes. And you're about to go back to work. But I'm, I'm happy to be back. I'm, I'm ready for to see. I got to see OTAs for the first time. I know you've seen two now, but uh, it, it felt good to be watching practice without a mask and seeing guys running around doing football things. Yeah, it did. It felt. It, it feels a little, a little normal. Kind of. Yeah. We're still in the pen, in the corner. <laughs> There's still some organizational members wearing masks, but every, almost everybody else is out there, free and clear. Um, so it, it is, but you, you get to see who has not gotten the vaccine, I guess. When you <laughs> yeah, see, that's right. Because, you know, you all, because the coaches that if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask or anything at practice. And so you see some of the people in the organization are still in there. Hey, that's fine. No one's judging here. Just pointing out it's, you sort of, you wear it like a, whether it's a scarlet letter or a different version of that, the happier version of the scarlet letter. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's, um, it's all out there. But so we're so we're out there watching for you, so we can bring you some you, us and one dude on the bridge. Shout out one dude on the bridge, who I saw some of his videos circulating the internet. Man, it's a talent. You feel the bridge mo- movement is is always going on strong, always. Yeah, that guy. He he didn't just like he was walking across and just stopped and watched for a little bit. He was there the entire practice. He, I thought he had binoculars. I didn't realize he was shooting video. So I and, only saw it because I saw. Him shooting the video of Joe Burrow throwing those 45, 50-yard passes that yeah. we were talking about at the end. And I was like, oh, good. Somebody that actually had the yard line he was standing on as we were trying <laughs> to sort of guess from the pen exactly where he was on the field because we're sort of back. You know, we're about 20 yards behind the end zone that he's throwing at, and he's standing out somewhere near midfield throwing the ball to the back pylon to T Higgins and Tyler Boyd. And it was hard to judge exactly how far it was until thank you. Internet. Thank you. Guy on bridge could see exactly where he was standing. He was standing on the 40 and it was landing about, and it'd be about five, five to 10 yards outside of the end zone. So on a 55, 60 yard throw burrow was launching there, which we'll get into in a second. We also want to tick through um, CJ Uzama, who wants to tell you what it would look like if the Bengals won the Super Bowl and he was partying and it's fantastic. Uh, and some more about him getting healthy. We're going to kind of tick through all the injured guys um, that we talked to a few of them uh, after practice on Tuesday. We're just going to kind of tick through them, their losses, what mad, what it meant, their expectations going forward, and, and kind of just sort of injury impact. And that includes C.J. Uzama, Jonah Williams, Trey Waynes, D.J. Reader, Joe Mixon, um, kind of some of the, the main ones. Obviously, we'll talk about Burrow before that. Um, Jay's got multiple stats for us to get through um, and a few other nuggets that we might touch on at the end, of course. Um, let's start with Burrow. 
Jay, you didn't get to see him last week being on vacation. What, I'll, I'll ask you first, then. What was your first impression? Um, I, I want to say I was amazed slash surprised, but I wasn't because I, I read what you wrote and re- realized how well he was moving. But to see it live and in person, and I guess uh, he was rolling out yesterday and throwing on the run and just doing things that it, it just seems quick. For uh, someone coming off, I've not had an ACL. I've never played pro football, obviously, but it just, I was really surprised at how well he was moving, how well he was throwing the ball. Um, he looked great. Now, obviously, there's no rush, there's no contact, anything like that, but just, just seeing him in person, the way he was moving, moving and, and not just throwing, but with his, the way he was moving on his feet, I was, surprised even though i knew he was already doing it yeah as far as you know for those that listened last week to the podcast where i kind of talked through burrow's day and um and then the interview with sam hubbard who obviously one of his close friends who's been with him kind of through almost every step of this process um you know it was much simpler last week and and to be expected first time out there around everybody else quick game quick drops you know, throwing the stuff to the side, just kind of getting it working, things like that. Well, there was a little difference this week, and that was a little more of the rollout stuff, a little bit more side to side movement. Not, not, not nothing. You know, massive. You're not seeing scramble drills, but you know, a little bit more of that, and then throwing the ball down the field. I mean, that was the thing that was noticeably different this week. Was we mentioned the end? So at the end of practice, it is. It's it's Tyler Boyd and T Higgins standing on the goal line. And Burrow out at, it looked to be about the 40-yard line. And Burrow would drop back, and not just him, Brandon Allen was with him, uh, would would do a quick drop back and then just launch towards the back pylon, and they would sort of walk under it and jump and, and catch it, just kind of getting a feel for throw, throwing and catching the ball deep. And, uh, you know, no, <laughs> no issue there. I mean, Burrow was letting it rip and... And putting it out there, and and that was that was a noticeable difference from last week. I mean, it was more of a you know all the throws type of day as compared to last week was just very safe, quick game things like that. Yeah, and a couple of things on Burrow. The the one you saw that competitive fire in him, even in that there was one he threw that was an absolute duck. It looked like I think one of us could have thrown it better, maybe not as far, but it was wobbling like crazy. And it was his last throw in a, in a series. And he, he kind of sulked off and you could tell he was really beating himself up just for, for one bad throw. Um, and then he came back that after uh, Brandon Allen made it through and he threw three straight spiral, perfect spirals, um, yeah. and, and hit the guys right where, where they needed to, which they're not running. So it's not as hard. The other thing I thought T Higgins was struggling he he had a number of passes bounce off his hands and then find out after practice CJ Uzama and Tyler Boyd all talking about how much more velocity that that Joe had on his bar CJ had said he had to go put his gloves on because his hands were stinging so much um that that he's throwing the ball that much harder and and the the, the couple that that bounced off of T Higgins hands early he still caught he caught he picked them out of the air after they bounced off his hands so they weren't they weren't like just really bad drops, but it was, it, it was kind of strange to see. You're like, what's, what's going on? Why, why can't he catch the ball? And then you find out afterwards it's because Joe's throwing it that much harder. Um, so just a, another step in, in the progression of, of him getting healthy and, and something that he's worked on. He, he mentioned that in his zoom last week that, that he, one of the things he wanted to work on was his velocity and it's, it's certainly showing up. Yeah, and you know, there's a couple of we we've it's it's interesting these things happen. At, you never know when they're going to, but stuff that we have sort of been writing about and talking about and tracking over the course of really since the injury in Washington, of the latest development with Burrow, and he's doing this, and they need this, and he's working on that, and here's where he is, and, and then you'll have, and it was a great story. I don't. This is not a. I have a no problem. It was a great story Albert Breer did on, on Joe Burrow, but it's sort of recapping all that we have been talking about throughout this. The one slightly new piece was a little bit more info from Burrow about his desire to get more velocity and, and to throw with more power. And, and that's part of improving 
what man we have just beat into death this offseason the need for more explosiveness in the offense be better throwing down the field it just wasn't good and that's partially on the quarterback that's partially on the receivers but it's really everybody and burrow seems to have taken that to heart which he has every time we've talked to him this offseason whether it was Right after the season, he talked about the need to be bit more explosive and be better throwing the ball down the field and, you know, around draft time and now. So that's – it's been a consistent theme, but, I mean, that is – now how much how much difference is there really? We don't know. You know why we don't know, Jay? Because <laughs> the Bengals don't have the, the – they don't, they don't employ the uh, ball velocity technology and things like that, so they're, they're not so – we don't know exactly the difference. Like, you, if, if they had that. You know, you would be looking at last year. Okay, he was throwing it on average X miles per hour, or his spin rate, right, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus this year, look, we are seeing a difference here. How much difference that actually makes in knowing? It's just knowing and having a quantifiable number, which is important. Uh, but yeah, they don't they don't have that. Um, but you, so you're just kind of judging off things like. Players telling you, look, it's coming harder. I can tell. And and that's good. I mean, that is right the knock. It was the one knock during yeah. the draft. Well, I, he's got enough arm, right? That was all. He's got enough arm. And uh, not surprising that Joe Burrow would take that to heart and be like, I'll show you enough arm. And and then it is important. I mean, that that's what this whole time period or this whole offseason is about is getting these guys back together and, and getting the chemistry down. And it. It's not like this is going to be a continued issue that even if he keeps adding velocity, they're going to get used to it. That these drops, this is all part of the, it's kind of, you know, like spring training in baseball. You, you work out the kinks and it, it wasn't everybody that was dropping them, but it, they all noted. Like I didn't see Tyler Boyd drop any passes, but he still noticed how much harder the ball was coming. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, it's OTAs. I there yeah. was like there was this thought last people were I couldn't I honestly couldn't even believe it. There was a tweet yesterday about has Jamar Chase fixed fixed his drops? What's going on with his drops? And I'm like, is this like I assumed since there's no sarcasm font, this has to be sarcasm. This isn't a really people wouldn't really be concerned with anybody who dropped a couple of passes in an OTA, right? Apparently that was a real thing. I, I I mean, it's stunning to me that that would actually be a real thing. We have years of tape of this guy not dropping balls and being a dominant catcher and doing everything you want out of a receiver and being number five overall pick. But a couple of videos of a couple of drops from an OTA, and we're going to like, we got to monitor this. Come on. What are Were we they doing? from OTAs? Because I he dropped a couple at rookie camp that I saw. I, obviously, I wasn't Maybe at the first it. OTA, and and that was like, okay, well, you don't have Joe Burrow putting the ball right where it needs to be. It, the the balls weren't exactly ideal play, ideally placed at at the rookie camp. And <laughs> no, I think no. I think there was a a couple cases too where they were they were working on you know kind of the backhanded catches as opposed to hauling it in the way you normally would. And it's just it's all it's all part of the off season and and just fundamentals and getting out kinks and you're right it, to anybody i hope that was a sarcastic tweet i, I it didn't was not see it it appeared no, it was not, not to be. well it appeared not to be and that's fine i just look you know what i'm gonna use to judge whether a guy can catch the ball or not all the catches that he made over the course <laughs> of his time at lsu and all the tape that's out there not a couple of throws at a damn near walk through ota Let's just come on. Let's let's focus on what's important here, okay? Like if we get through all of camp and the preseason and a couple of games in, and we're like, man, it's Ch- he's just dropping everything. We'll talk. We'll talk. All right. Let's. It, it's not something we need to monitor. It's not the ghost of John Ross. No. <laughs> no. I mean, and, I, and I, maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's John Ross reflex, right? Yeah, that could be. The JRR, like you're just like, oh no, is it? Oh no. Uh, but yeah, we'll, I'm not going to worry about that just now. All right, let's take a second and switch gears here and hear from a sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's shift gears for a second here and tick through some of the healthy guys that have returned, a few of which we talked to on Tuesday. Um, and I want to let's start with CJ Uzama, who was as entertaining as always. CJ is a joy. Uh, I miss being in the locker room BSing with CJ endlessly. Um, and this was sort of a little flashback to how great those days were, the good old days. Hope they'll be back one day. But uh, he was fantastic, and including talking about exactly what it would look like for him to just be feeding Joe Burrow shots over and over again after they won the <laughs> Super Bowl. Uh, and Tyler Boyd holding a bottle of Hennessy. Shirtless. Shirt off for months. <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, it's, 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 I'll just, let's do that. Let me, uh, can we just, it started uh, with a question. I was actually, I was waiting the same way Ben, Ben baby asked the question. I was sitting the same way waiting to give him an opportunity to talk about Chelsea, who I know he's as avid of a fan as, as this. They won the champions league. And, uh, so the question was asked and, uh, yeah, this is what happened next. Uh, I think we'd be remiss. Uh, thoughts on Chelsea winning the Champions League, CJ? Bro, let's go, boys. Are you kidding me? How long do you want to talk about this? Okay, I'm just going to say this. I was supposed to be there. I I didn't end up going. Okay, COVID, all that stuff. Also, Portugal has like a big North American ban, unless you're an essential worker, um, which I, I could have gotten, but I wanted to take my parents. But we're the champions of Europe. I think it's kind of indicative of how this season's going to go. I was so hyped. Um, yeah, you know, it, it was Memorial Weekend, so we're having a good time, right? And we're just chilling, watching the game, and I just start banging out push-ups. Like, right, I'm just like, all right, they won. This is our time. Like, all the teams, all of my teams are going to win this year. Um, no, it's it's insane. Um, it was scenes for sure. I, I have some friends that went over um, from the podcast, from the Chelsea podcast, and they FaceTimed me. Uh, right afterwards it was like within 30 seconds I was a little behind so it might have been you know they they might have been celebrating for like 15 seconds or whatever but they FaceTimed me and it, I, I couldn't be happier to be honest about that aspect of, of sports I mean y'all did y'all did have to y'all have to fire Lampard you hired Tuchel you, you kind of walked into the top four so you know congratulations bring it back full circle here though I mean when you have it when you experience that kind of as a fan how much do you kind of want to does that do anything for you as an athlete be like you know this is what it feels like to win everything like and I want to do this whenever we get back I mean does that translate at all I'm just curious that's why I started doing push-ups like ASAP to be honest I honestly I, I like it's it's awesome to you know as a fan of sports in general right like you see a team win and you see how excited like think the bucks last year Tom Brady absolutely just hammered having a great time with his boys. Like I, I want that to happen. Like I want to see Joe Burrow absolutely hammered wherever we are and me just feeding him more drinks and just tossing. I mean, like that is, that's, that's the dream. Like that is, that's why I play to win and to, to have a good time with the boys. I want TB to, to be holding the bottle of Henny, like J.R. Smith with the calves, with his shirt off the entire the, the entire off season. You know what I'm saying? Like that is, that's what I want. So, you know, seeing again, like seeing Chelsea win, seeing the scenes in the locker room, seeing Thomas come in and start spraying champagne. That's what I want. I want to be right after the Super Bowl. I want a bottle of champagne. I want to bust it open and just start spraying everyone with it. Um, that sounded like I was an alcoholic. I'm not, but all the celebrations, <laughs> there's alcohol involved. So, you know, I'm like, all right, like that's, 
I don't know. That's 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 something that you dream of as a little kid, and that's something I still um, aspire for. And and or, you know, that's what we're working for. You want, do you want Joe to throw the Lombardi to you? Yeah, why not? Are you kidding me? I'll throw it to him. Like, hey, look, hey, take, give your arm a rest. You've been throwing too many touchdowns. All right, just just rest it right now. I got you. I'll start tossing it. I mean, you know. I want to be feeding Joe Burrow shots, so he's so hammered. He's talking about you know the, the video of Tom Brady being hammered. It's like that's what they went. It's fun, and it you know what like that's fun. That's why you do sports. It's why you follow a team. You you just want to have that moment, and the idea of visualizing that moment is as fun as the actual moment itself. And clearly, CJ has given it a good amount of thought, which I appreciated. And congratulations to his Chelsea Blues, who had a much better week than my Everton club who lost their manager who was supposed to help them go to the next level and instead he went to Real Madrid and now we're back in the crapper. I'm not bitter about it at all. I'm not still It doesn't sound like it. No. It, it, it was cool though just to, I mean, because the, I know all these athletes watch sports and, and a lot of times they they follow guys. They want to watch LeBron or, or whoever it is and, and to actually be hear a guy like CJ be a fan of a team and celebrate that win. I just think it helps them connect with, with Bengals fans. And they, they know a lot of times these guys just look at it as a business and the the fans are kind of this dis, distant entity that just part of the game. And I, I think that it was kind of cool to hear CJ talk about being a fan and dropping and doing push-ups as soon as they won, because he's like, this is it. This is my year where all my teams are going to win. It's just, it, it, he's always been refreshing in that in that regard, but that particular aspect of it to just hear a, a pro athlete be a fan and a, a cheerleader, if you will, of a team it was it was a unique perspective. CJ has one of the most outgoing personalities I've ever mm-hmm. met from a football player that you know on the Bengals or really anywhere that I've covered anybody, uh, and and a remarkable EQ. I mean, he has a, a really great social feel and how to interact, and and he's just he and be a positive energy guy. Like that's just that's his. He he owns that. He owns that personality. He owns that presence. You know, it's like well, let's have fun. Let's do it. And and it's. It's perfect, and there's just not a lot of guys that have that. I thought, you know, he talked about Burrow for a little while and getting to know him a little bit and, like, how he kind of was discovering Burrow's personality over the course of this rehab that they've been doing together and and about, okay, he's got a really dry sense of humor. He's really funny, and and, and CJ saying, okay, there, oh, there's that guy, like, when he started, like, kind of saying, getting him to laugh and things like that, and I think that's – interesting from cj who i think is really advanced in social interaction and and understanding that um in that locker room to see that uh and discover that that burrow is starting to let that piece out i you know we're not in there so it's really hard for us to and even if we were in there it would be really hard for us to gain a true knowledge of how much that aspect of burrow has kind of you know evolved and, and and become part of it um but hearing that from CJ gives you a little insight because, you know, he's somebody who's really on top of that and really understands that that dynamic within the team. Um, one other th- something else about CJ I wanted to say um, is I thought his injury was the most underrated element of last year's demise, um, and not that Drew Sample wasn't fine. Like Drew Sample, but it took Drew Sample out of his role. You know, it, it diminished. It diminished a little bit what the dynamic of the whole offense was going to be, and it totally took away two tight end sets, and, and the idea for them to be able to use twelve personnel more often. And and when you do that, I mean, it you you, you take a tool out of the toolbox, which we'll be talking about tools in a minute, uh, and you you take away really the more dynamic receiving threat that's what cj i mean cj go back and watch for people that really want on to understand it i mean it was it's weird it's weird to go back and watch bro those first two weeks is it's very different he's clearly discovering things and figuring things out but go back and watch his connection with cj even through those first two games and we saw it in camp i mean it was noticeable it was one of the most encouraging aspects of those first two games and 
that's why when he gets hurt, you feel like, oh, you never even got to see him when T. Higgins discovered himself. You never even got to see any of that together. Um, and and I, you know, I think he brings a real explosive element to the tight end more so than people probably realize or gave it enough credit for because they never really got to see it. Yeah, and that's a great point because a lot of times the tight end is a rookie quarterback's best friend, but it's because they go through a couple progressions, and if nothing's there, it's the check down to to the tight end. And that wasn't necessarily the case with CJ. Um, it, it was, like you said, the connection, the chemistry that those two had. And I'm trying to remember, I think it was, I want to say it was fairly early in the second half of that, that week two game when CJ suffered the injury. So he, regardless, he left that game early. He didn't have two full games. And at the end of week two, he was tied for third on the team in receptions and he was fourth in targets. Um, so there, it was, there was something building there between those two. And, and that is a, a really great point that, that that could be one of the underrated reasons why things went South for this team. And, you know, T Higgins, I don't, I don't think he started that game. Maybe he did. Maybe that was his no. first start, but it was, it was the Philly game when he really kind of took off after CJ was already out. And just having that, that other option, having that, that tight end that, that can be the check down or can be, I'm not saying CJ Uzama is in the Tyler Eifert mold, but he, he can get up the seam. He can make big explosive plays and it's just another weapon. So now you've got, Basically, CJ coming back and the edge of chase and you're going to add a, a healthy Joe Mixon who figures to be more involved in the passing game. And this it just opens everything up. We we had talked a lot and I've written a bunch about, you know, they led the league in 11 personnel the last two mm-hmm. years uh, as far as percentage. And, you know. I think that is that is who I mean we we talk about it a lot. Oh, that's their system. Right. But it's also partially what they kind of were cornered to do. I mean, what do you. Who you who are you bringing in as the second tight end last year? Seaton Carter. I mean, you, you want to be in twelve personnel where you're versed because you're versatile because they don't know what they're going to do, and but you need to have some more dynamic play in case you want to throw it out of twelve, right? I mean, and and that was just lacking a little bit, and you certainly didn't have that if you're talking about Seaton Carter. You're not putting like Shrek. I mean, that that just wasn't happening all last year, hmm. and so. You were that was where they ended up because that was their best way to move the ball offensively. If you can be you can be in twelve more. I mean, what you can do in the run game with CJ and Drew Sample out there is is fantastic. I mean, you know, you you get bigger bodies out there. There's still a threat to throw it. You can easily play action off of it and get CJ and Drew out, and you can make plays. There's just a lot you can do, and I don't. I never, in conversations with Brian Callahan or Zach Taylor or anybody on that offensive game planning, ever got the thought, yeah, they love 11, and they love what they can do out of it. That's obvious. But I never got the thought that they didn't want to do more 12. I, I got the opposite impression, that they were really excited about the addition of what they could do in 12 last year. But that was taken away from them. And so I think the idea of being able to open that back up is – you know, I'm not gonna say that they're gonna like be in the top ten and twelve personnel next year, but I don't think they're gonna be first in eleven, and and that can be uh, you know give them a lot of more things for teams to have to prepare for. I have some stats that kind of play into this. Let's do it. You Jay's like got stats. Them. I'm ready for him. I was because I was curious. I just mentioned it. We've talked about it a lot. All the weapons that Joe Burrow is going to have, and and now you add Jamar Chase to this. And I was curious, you know, if if I were to set an over under on receptions at sixty nine and a half for Tyler Boyd, what would you what would you go over or under? Uh, probably over because he's been over. I believe he. I mean, he's been over each of his last three three, three years, right? Yeah. And if I set that same number for T Higgins, are you taking the over or the under? Uh, T Higgins had sixty seven last year, and that was with missing a bunch of time and not starting. So I, I'm definitely going over on that. And then if I were to do it for Jamar Chase, he's going to get AJ Green's targets, and AJ Green got targeted over a hundred times. Is he going to have a catch percentage? Over? It's going to be close. I, yeah. I think he might. So I was curious how many times a team has had three players have seventy or more receptions in a season, and it's actually happened quite a bit. But the the interesting thing is it's happened fifteen times in the last ten years, 
And in 13 of those 15, one of those players was either a tight end or a running back. Mm. Now, is CJ Uzama going to go over 70? Probably not. Is Joe Mixon going to go over 70? Probably not. But the idea that the three receivers go over 70 is a realistic proposition. And uh, of those 15 teams that did it, seven of them had winning records and went to the playoffs. So it's it's not just terrible teams. And in fact, there there was only one team on there there was one team on that list that was really bad. Um there were a couple seven and nines, but the only team that was kind of in the range that the Bengals have been recently, the the 2014 Bears had they went five and eleven. And they had a running back and a tight end go over the the seven. A lot of mark. check downs. Yes, a lot, <laughs> a lot of, of trailing by twenty five check downs. Matt Forte and Martellus Bennett both had over ninety actually, and then Alshon wow. Jeffrey had eighty five. So yeah, it, it's. I I thought it was going to be way fewer. It. I I was looking. To, the Bengals have never had three receivers with with sixty or more catches in a season. And you go back. I know this is a totally different game, but I went back that 1988 season when Boomer Esiason was the MVP of the league. Uh, you know how many catches the leading receiver on the team had that that year? I mean, you'd have to go and look what that compares to the rest of the league. I know. But yeah, I, know. I, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't very many. What, 50? 53. 53 oh. for Eddie Brown. And no one else had more than 39. So. Yeah. Totally different era, different. obviously. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it's, I mean, we talk about it all the time, how fast Joe Burrow processes and, and all these weapons. And I, I think it was CJ yesterday that was talking about, yeah, good luck to defenses trying to cover all the weapons we have. Um, it, it's, it'll be interesting to see what, what that breakdown is going to be. And if it can be kind of even and they can get three guys over 70, not that it guarantees success, but again, a lot of those teams that do it, Go to the playoffs, and, and two of them won Super Bowls. What were the two that won the Super Bowl? Did I miss that? Um, it was. I'm sorry. Two went to the Super Bowl. One won the 2014 Patriots. Edelman 92, Gronk 82. Former Bengal Brandon LaFell 74. Uh, they went 12 and four, 12 and four. Won the Super Bowl thanks to Russell Wilson's late interception, mm-hmm. and then. It was the uh, 2013 Broncos. Demarius Thomas, 92. Eric Decker, 87. And Wes Welker, 73. Went 13-3 and and lost the Super Bowl. And I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Three went to the Super Bowl. The 2011 Patriots also uh, went to the Super Bowl uh, with, with Welker, 122. Gronk, 90. And Aaron Hernandez, 79. So you just need Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, uh, and yeah, you're good. Uh, uh, on the thirteen Broncos, Brian Callahan on that staff, by the way. Um, you know, it's interesting when you when you look at these these teams. Here's here's some homework that I would give to you, Jay, and that I I think is maybe it plays off of what you're saying. And I, this is a lot about health, right? Like yeah. this is a lot about your three best receivers staying healthy. Now for the Bengals this year, that's it's very important because the drop off from Jamar Chase to Auden Tate, Mike Thomas, um, or T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, all to the to the next three is significant. Not because that next three isn't fine, but your top three is such high tier that you're really kind of you, you what really makes you dynamic is all three of those guys being healthy. Not that that you couldn't, you know, Auden Tate couldn't come in and play a role. You love those guys in sub packages, but you don't necessarily want them to be out there all the time. So you're talking about health. And and if the health happens, I think it's a very real possibility that you see that. But another part of that health would be Joe Mixon staying healthy mm-hmm. and CJ Uzama being a real weapon. So what about 5 over 50? Yeah. Okay. I'll so where you where now you're getting this this core, you can now add the running backs. You can have a top. You then now you have all three of your receivers over fifty, and and I would even you know you would throw in an X number of those could be over a certain amount per reception, where you're not talking about checkdowns. We get into very specific skill sets, but if you were if, and and this is something that maybe will be a fun project for us to do and talking with Zach Taylor and Brian Callahan and Dan Pitcher uh quarterbacks coach about this is is what does the ideal distribution look like is it about more is it about 5 over 50 is it about 3 over 75 or 80 is it about to me and, and I kind of learned this and really grew a true appreciation for this in the Jay Gruden school 
of offense, and that was distribution matters more than your high end. You know, the multiple ways that you can go with ease and dominate there matters more than one guy. The best offenses aren't based on one guy. We had a lot of these conversations in A.J. Green's early years when when the offense really wasn't as dynamic when it force-fed A.J. Green. Not until it started really utilizing Marvin Jones and Muhammad Sanu equally or to a higher degree did that offense really start taking off. And the same thing is going to be the case here. The good news for the Bengals is, is they've got three very similar options that can be dominant in each spot. You don't have to worry about force-feeding anybody necessarily, and Joe Burrow is certainly not going to do that. He's shown that over the course of his career, but I think the same goes for not force-feeding the receivers and running more stuff that's, that does utilize the tight end and does util, utilize Joe Mixon out of the backfield and doing that equally where the defense shows up not really able to – pinpoint anything the moment they're over the ball that's when your offense really takes off I'd be curious some offenses that have that even though a lot of this does come back to health over the course of a full season yeah I'd be willing to bet that that nobody I'll, I'll look it up but I, I would be willing to bet no one's had five over 50 but the, the I mean, thing they had with, five over 40 last year the Bengals had five over 40 last year they had 79 yeah. for Boyd 67 for Higgins 47 for Green 47 for Geo and 40 for Drew Sample yeah, 50 is another level. I don't 50 know. 50 is another and, level, and they did throw a lot of passes last year. But true. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> a whole lot. Um, but the other thing is it's it's not just as equal as that distribution sounds. It's not it's not a level thing across the season. The whole point of that is you, you've got Joe Burrow in year two, Zach Taylor in year three, kind of getting a feel for in-game adjustments and management and – it could look completely different from one game to the next. That's what it's all about. Finding a team's weakness and then just hammering it in the second half. Once you see a guy is winning over and over again and having that luxury of, okay, we thought Jamar Chase was going to be the man this game, but T Higgins is destroying his guy. And, and all of a sudden you just, you kind of pivot from the game plan and you have that luxury to go in different directions. I, I think that's really where that, that kind of distribution would come in. It's not going to look the same every game. And what sets Joe Burrow apart is pivoting play to play. Yeah. Is is understanding, you know, his understanding and processing of the defense and what they're trying to do. And that's why you see so much the big jump from quarterbacks in year two. They have much better understanding of what defenses are trying to do to them. And for Burrow, look (laughs) – Let's be honest. I mean, we mentioned Peyton Manning and Tom Brady earlier. The way the Bengals win at that level is if Joe Burrow becomes Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. That I mean, that's what you're banking on. That's what that's what he needs to be. Uh, I, and, and maybe maybe you can win to a, if he's something to a slightly lesser degree, but not much. <laughs> that's that's what he needs to be to save this franchise, and and maybe he can be. But the hope on that is that his processing ability and his ability to to see exactly what the defense is doing and utilize all his weapons perfectly is part of what his biggest strength is. And to do that on the fly and do that spontaneously after the snap is part of what sets him apart So and can get you adjusting play to play instead of series to series or quarter to quarter or whatever. And so that's, you know, to have the ability to do that on the fly is you know you got to have the weapons to go with it you got to have the options to counteract and they haven't always had the options to counteract everything so uh, yeah it's a fun that's is is a fun thing to play but so much of this comes back to can all those guys stay out there and be on the field together and still be as dynamic so um fun to watch fun to think about too good stuff um let's ticking through because none of this matters the offensive line stinks as you might have been aware <laughs> or talked about every day. Um, Jonah Williams, we talked to yesterday, and he's kind of back out there. You know, We saw his first full season cut short after his actual first season was non-existent. And he was good. I mean, uh, he, he was not great. In pass sets, he was very good. Uh, they probably wanted more out of him in the run game, but I would say they wanted more out of everybody in the run game last year. And it's a big part of the reason Frank Pollock is here is I think there's a thought that his wide zone system will be able to get more out of Joe Mixon and everybody that's run blocking for him. Uh, 
And so Jonah was sort of talking about, look, like there's a lot of different ways that I feel more comfortable this year. And have, you know, he's, he's obviously worked hard on continuing to rework his body and, and be stronger and build off what he did last year. But the, the Frank Pollock aspect of this is interesting. And he talked a little bit about uh, what he thinks Frank Pollock can do to help him. When you were talking about Frank and the toolbox and all that, is that, is that something you had thought about before? I mean, you know, did he bring kind of a different perspective to it? Uh, just maybe looking at something that you hadn't looked at before. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 things that I've I've thought about before, but I think what what coach is really good at is he he gives names to everything, so he can say you know do X this play, do Y this play, switch it up with Z this play. Whereas for me, I you know kind of do it more loose and just kind of go by feel. But having more structure and being able to drill those things over and over and over again. That gives me a lot of confidence that when it comes down to game time, I'll be able to go out there and execute the things because, you know, we started drilling them now in OTAs and I'm going to drill them all up until camp and then throughout the season. So uh, I think, you know, by the time we get to to game time, I'm going to have done these reps, you know, thousands of times and I'm going to be able to go and execute it on the field. All right. We're in Frank's toolbox now, Jay. <laughs> What's, what do you see in Frank's toolbox uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know where to go with that one. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, it is, I, I think everybody is optimistic that, that the run game, I mean, you saw the reaction as soon as they hired him from, from the players that had been with Frank before how excited they were. And uh, you, you've got a, a veteran in Riley reef, um, and, and you got Jonah anchoring the line. There's just, it, it feels like that the toolbox, whatever those tools are, is full. They, they can go so many different ways, and he can get the, the not just the most out of the team scheme-wise, but the most out of each individual technique-wise. Um, I think that's a big part of it with Jonah talking about how – you know, every little thing has a name, and it's easier to relate and and focus on this move, that move, this just all that kind of stuff. And we haven't really seen, I mean, Jonah was a first round pick as everyone knows, and and he has not lived up to that billing, but it's it, injuries have been a big part of that. And this could, this could be a huge, the third year is always a huge year for rookies, but it, especially for Jonah, this could really kind of set the foundation for Zach has thrown his, his support behind him said, even before they signed Riley reef, that whoever they go out and get in free agency, that, that Jonah was his left tackle. Um, this this can really set that foundation for is he your guy for the next ten years? You know, it's not nobody's questioning whether he's going to get a second contract, but if he has another year, another up and down year, then that becomes a big question. But if he can come out and really have that third year breakthrough, like a lot of rookies have, it, it really answers a lot of questions. And we're not just talking about a third year breakthrough. We're talking about a what, 11th game breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, the guy hasn't even played 16 NFL games and he's had to play left tackle against some of the best this game has ever seen. I mean, you know, your Miles, Miles Garrett tore him up a couple of times, but Miles Garrett tears everybody up, right? I mean, you think about the guys that, that he was going up against. I mean, we joked about the openers. I mean, the Chargers, I mean, you're seeing these, these just horses and, and then Cleveland a couple of times and then obviously Pittsburgh. I mean, you, you, the list of, and that's what this league is in a lot of ways, but also it was really a murderer's row for Jonah too, getting started and, and to see how he's learning and, and, it is very, very, I would say, not just realistic, but what you would expect, that he will be a very good left tackle this year, that you could see him. We did a lot of, I did a lot of tier work in the offseason in, in tiering offensive linemen into elite, above average, below average, and liability. And really, if you're in anything but that liability, and if you can kind of stay out of that below average, if you, you don't have to be elite, but if you're in that above average, we live, we win the no donkeys game, right? And like, yeah. that is, he was there. He, he was barely in that above average last year. Um, and if he can go from there to the top of above average, the bottom of the elite, the top quarter of the league amongst tackles, that's great. That is a standard career arc for somebody who has done what Jonah has done thus far, which is mostly be injured and and play a little bit. And 
they there's a personality trait you were betting on with Jonah. The the workaholic nature was sort of his main character trait on top of, you know, technician and, you know, he had spreadsheets and all this other stuff. But like there was really a refuse to fail thing with Jonah that was part of the likability factor. You're going to get the most out of him. And I, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I'm just that was part of the scouting profile. And so you're betting on that. You're betting on that he will get better and he will improve with experience. And now he has some. And so, yeah, I, I think it's very real to think that he could be playing at an elite level, a top quarter of the NFL tackle level this year. Absolutely. I mean, I very much think that's a possibility. Um, but I also think we learn if it's possible that he's kind of just a guy for his career. Like he need this is the year you need to show that. Like I just wonder, you know, it's very rare. We saw it in Denver with Garrett Bowles, and we'll see if that continues. Guys that just go from like eh, 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 and all of a sudden in year four, they just they're great, right? You just don't see that very often at offensive line. It's usually gradual and you and you quickly figure out if someone's gonna get better or not. I saw that a lot. And sorry, I'm rambling about this, but like Again, back to the, when I did t- the tier work and really diving into offensive linemen and, and what they're what they have done over their early parts of their career, it, it showed it was very rare to see a lineman go where you know he was in the bottom half and then was up and then it was back down to the liability and then back up to above average. It was usually what. Once you put yourself somewhere, it's kind of where you were. And maybe you went up one each year, but there was it was very rare to see somebody be somebody all over the map grading-wise. They typically were who they were over the at once you reached that spot by your second or third year. And I think we're going to learn this year who where Jonah Williams is. I think what he plays like this year, assuming he stays healthy, we're going to learn where Jonah Williams is. If he stays the same guy or he regresses a little bit, you've got yourself probably an average tackle that maybe you need to think about what the future looks like. If he takes a very a realistic, predictable step, you feel like you have a guy who deserved to be the number 11 pick and can be your guy there for the next 10 years. Yeah, and this is kind of a subjective stat, but you know, PFF – puts the puts sacks on the the linemen that that gave it up and they don't know what the blocking schemes are and all of that but usually out on the edge it's one on one it doesn't come down to scheme you you are on an island sometimes and it's it's obvious whether you got beat or not and only 3 of Joe Burrow's 32 sacks last year were pinned on Jonah Williams now a lot of that's because the rest of the line was so bad and teams could could find other ways to get to him but that's that's not all bad for a guy that was essentially a rookie playing the murderer's row that you mentioned of of some of the most elite pass rushers in the league it was a really tough schedule from that standpoint for Jonah and for for the Bengals overall and and another thing is that a lot of times it's it's the the, the tackle developing and getting into that tier where you said he's going to stay. And part of it too is coaching and guys like Frank Pollock and Zach Taylor and figuring out who these guys are and scheming around them to put them in the best spot to succeed. So yes, this he's going to be one of the, all the focus is going to be on Jamar Chase and and, and Joe Burrow and, and what this passing game is going to look like. But for those of you that watch the ball on almost every play, just, just, Watch Jonah from time to time and and see where that growth is coming. If it's coming, you, you hope you see it. But th- this is the the kind of the make or break it year for him. I mean, if I'm if I'm ranking concern spots on the offensive line, <laughs> I mean he's at the bot. Him and Riley. I mean, I, I'm I'm ranking him. He's the, my least concern. Yeah, and pro- by a decent margin, Riley Reef. He's coming over new. He's learning new, but he's done it for a while. He's in his thirties, so you're like, well, are we gonna, what are you going to start to see some decline? We don't know. So maybe that's the one. But I have very little concern about Riley. But you still, I have. That's my least concern is Jonah. Mm-hmm. I, I think he'll be fine. I really do. Um, but it is a big year for him personally to see if maybe he'll be a real dude, or if he'll be like a dude. Or a guy. You can be you can be a guy, you can be a dude, or a dude, right? It's like those are the three levels. And then like and then like uh the guy, right? So we've got uh the guy, a guy, and then a dude, and then the dude. 
So those are our four. Those are our four tiers. If we make that official, and this team has had some the dudes in the past, oh, and that's when they were some winning. The dudes, and they've and had some uh guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's just take a quick break. Let's jump over to Trey Waynes, who was thrilled to talk to the media yesterday. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'll say this. Um, I talked to Trey last year. Uh, did a story on him, and and when he was in the mid, it was November, late November, I want to say, mm-hmm. early December, and there was like sort of that idea of is he going to come back? Is he not going to come back? And he he eventually didn't, even though the thought was he should be able to maybe come back by the end of the year. There was really no reason for him to chance it. He was not in a great place, man. I mean, I, I remember it most for his. Re, just relentless cursing uh and, and because but i and it's funny like this is a little kind of behind the scenes inside baseball but i when there's a lot of cursing in an interview uh sometimes you take it out or you you know you'll expletive it or work around it and find areas where he wasn't cursing but the point was he was really frustrated and mad last year he was in the middle of the pandemic he was frustrated by all the protocol stuff. He was mad about not being able to play. He was just in a, he was in a bad place, and it was admitting that a little bit in the interview. And and that's why I left it all because it, it mm. was sort of showing this is where this guy's at. Now, granted, it was the first time I'd ever had an interview with him, um, and maybe that was just how he talked, but it didn't come across that way. It came across as this is how I'm venting my frustration. And so I left a lot of that in there last year, and that's where he was. It was a frustrating year. Nobody was happy about it, at least of all Trey Waynes. He had the crap with his injury before the season and his contract situation that he wasn't happy about, and, and his agent vented about that uh, to a national writer. And, and so you you found this. This is the first time he'd done like a Zoom with everybody, and he was not really super into it. Um, but, you know, just talked about sort of feeling relieved about just being out there and not having to worry about anything and kind of he does seem there's a bit of a refreshing nature to his presence and that's what Zach Taylor said too it's just it's just it's a, it's really for everybody just to see him out there just being who they thought they got yeah i mean every time a guy is hurt like that and misses the whole season or even suffers an injury in the middle of the season and then goes on ir they all talk about how you just don't feel like a part of the team that you're you're just this guy that's going in and out of the training, and and those guys are still, in some cases, in many cases, still going to meetings and, and and still being involved, but they're just not playing, and it just feels, you know, they feel kind of ostracized a little bit. Well, imagine last year with with COVID, they he he can't be around the team hardly at all, and it's a new team, so he he didn't get to build these relationships. There was no off season. So he didn't really get to know his coaches, his teammates. It, it was just, you could see the, the reason for his frustrations. And honestly, it was, it, it was kind of a good sign that, that he felt that way because it, it kind of tells you what kind of guy he is. Some guys could be like, Hey, I look at this, the team is terrible and I'm banking $14 million to sit and watch it. And this, this beats getting my, you know, busting my ass every week and, and, and doing all that where he, he wanted to be out there. He wanted to be helping the team and he was frustrated because he couldn't be. Um, so I, I think just that him venting the way he did to you kind of shows his character and where he's coming from. And yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't in the most talkative move mood yesterday, but I, I, I have a feeling that's going to change um, that once he gets settled in and, doesn't have to answer questions about the injury and the contract. Uh, you know, the, the the contract was one of the first questions, and that always kind of sets a guy on the defensive mode. So it mm. it it is a, a big deal because it's not just him new. Now you have three starting cornerbacks that have never played before, and and they're they're getting to know each other, and they actually have an off season where some teams still aren't doing the all the hundred percent on field stuff, and it is. You, you can feel the, the relief from him that he's actually able to get out there and start doing what they're paying him to do. And I don't care if he has a bad attitude, if he doesn't want to talk to us, if he only wants yep. to curse at us. The <laughs> Bengals don't care either. If he needs to go play good. They, they didn't give him $14 million per year to talk to us, although he does have to talk to us without being fined. Uh, 
and, and I'm not going to – I'll touch on that later, I'm not, but, uh, you know, just as a note. But they none of that has anything to do with what matters, and that is him being able to stay healthy and go out there and play at a level. The question to me is what level is Trey Wayne's going to play? We just don't know. Like, it's mm-hmm. such a weird variable. This whole sec, this whole cornerback room is such a variable because – it's just very weird to see a total flip of your starting three corners. And, and you know, there's a lot of high expectations, and Mike Hilton seems to be very excited about being with the Bengals, and at least according to his social accounts. And, <laughs> and, and there's a thought that could be a pretty significant upgrade there at corner, and there, you got some aggression there and a tackling ability and, and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, you, the, you've got the Chidobe Awuzie, who you're, you're kind of thinking – there's a lot of thought that he's a really great change of scenery candidate, but has a lot of great physical skills and, and a lot of excitement there about what he can be. But we just don't know. Like, we just don't know what this cornerback room is really going to play like, either together or individually. There's just there's a lot of variable there, and we, and and while they've been around, it's just hard to pinpoint what exactly you're going to get. I, I like the depth. Here's something I, I when I did was on with Mo yesterday. Uh, I sort of we started kind of talking through this, and and my my little mini take on it was, I would take this year's group over last year's group. Oh yeah, and for the depth factor, I think there's a lot more reliable depth this year than there was last year. And that position we you see it every year, every team, and certainly on this team. The attrition will get you, and you're only as strong as your weakest link. You, you, so you would agree you would take this year's group over last year's group? Yes, uh, on personnel and, like you said, depth. But also, even if it was the exact same cornerback group, I would take it this year over last year because they're going to have a pass rush this year. They didn't have a pass rush last year, and that, that really hamstrings the cornerback. So we don't know for sure, but – you you saw what the defensive line was last year. It, it figures with all the attention going and getting Trey Hendrickson. I, yeah, you lose Carl Lawson, but the, the the rookies they drafted. It just feels like they are going to be so much better at getting after the quarterback this year. That alone helps the cornerbacks. And I and I do think personnel wise and depth wise, this group is better than than last year. So for for all of those reasons, I w- I would definitely take this year's group. Even though we haven't seen them take a single snap, I would take this year's group over last year's group. Yeah, and because and that would be taking Trey Wayne's out of last year's group, mm-hmm. you know, too, and and so that that's a that's a big part. But you know, you just you you know you're going to deal with attrition. You're bringing Darius Phillips off the bench. You've got the Eli Apple experiment still happening there. Um, you have Ricardo Allen who can drop down and play slot for you as as a little bit of a, a more viable slot option if something happens to Mike Hilton, and Phillips can play slot for you too. Uh, so you're, you're really you're covered in a lot of areas, whereas last year, you know, I don't know what we thought LaShawn Sims was going to be, <laughs> but I know what it turned out to be. And uh, and and it was very early in the year we were talking about Tony Brown and Tory McTire and 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 a lot of players. Winston that, Rose and Winston. We were, we were that's what you had to talk about. You were weighing these guys because of where the injuries put them, and so. So much of it always comes back to health, but you know, it is a it's a big variable. But I would bet on this variable probably over mm-hmm. last year's, and I may absolutely regret those. and Want to burn this tape here at like five weeks into the season, but um, that's just kind of my my general thought. Um, a quick DJ Reader because you talked about the defensive line and pass rush. We talked to Reader last week. Um, you know, his loss last year, I think was. Significant, but when he was playing, we did not see the pass rush element. I think they wanted to kind of get at him. The thought was, yes, you're getting a elite, one of the absolute best run stopping defensive tackles over the center that that you can find in the league. But that he also had had some pass rush to him, and he was going to lose some weight so that he could be a little bit more of a full game pass rusher for them too in spots, and not just be the two down guy. Early on in the season, we really didn't see that. It, what I'm most curious about with DJ Reader coming off this injury whenever he comes back fully 
which all expectations are he'll be good for the whole year, is how much is he really giving you as a pass rusher? I mean, that's kind of, I think, is a real question. Um, He needs to give more than he did in that first few games of the season last year. Well, I think part of the expectations for for his ability to rush the passer last year was that he's going to be lining up next to Geno Atkins, and Geno's going to get be getting the double teams, and Geno wasn't playing when DJ Reader was in there. So DJ Reader was getting the double teams. So I, I think that was a big part of it. You're you're obviously not going to have a, a an all-pro caliber defensive tackle lined up next to DJ Reader this year, but I would think Larry Ogunjobi is, is going to – be more productive than whoever the guys they were rolling out last year while DJ Reader was playing and more productive than Geno Atkins ended up being all year. So, yeah, I just think regardless of of how much DJ Reader improves on his own, just that fact of, of having more pass rushers around him is going to help him get to the quarterback more. I, I mean, I agree. It's hard to be worse. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's 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 almost impossible to give less from a pass rush perspective from the two interior defensive line. I mean, it was like I, I forget I had the number. I it was almost single digit pressures <laughs> from the defensive tackle position. Essentially, I mean, it was it was unbelievable how how little they got there. And yeah, just those guys alone, I think does it changes the whole dynamic. There's a great podcast. Peter Schreger is doing it's called Flying Coach and uh over at the Ringer and it's him and Sean McVay and they kind of host it and they bring in different coaches. Well he did one and it was Matt LaFleur and Robert Sala. Uh they're all friends and it was talking about the Rams though and talking about how Aaron Donald is the best cornerback in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> because you don't need to be a good cornerback when you've only got a cover for a couple of seconds, right? Like that's yeah. when you, it just, I think it, a lot of people don't realize how much the absolute core of every problem they had defensively last year was the zilch they were getting from those two spots. Yeah. You can't survive in the league today without getting any pass rush from the interior. You can't. It takes the edge guys longer to get to have all the great edge guys you want. That's great. If you don't have a great interior pass rusher, you're screwed because you're letting quarterbacks step up. You're letting them flush out. You're not forcing them out to those edges. And you're letting them stand there and be comfortable and give the receivers are going to get open. Like you just can't give quarterbacks today that kind of time and not make them feel uncomfortable back there and rush a couple throws. And that was the key. So they, there's a lot on Larry Ogunjobi's plate to be a real guy, and there's a lot on everybody that they're going to have on the interior to start to give them some production uh, in the pass rush game, and we'll see how much they get, whether it's popping Cam Sample inside some, whether it's popping Sam Hubbard inside some, whether it's whatever it is, it's finding a way to get some pressure uh, up the middle because they got none of it last year, and that was really so much the root of all evil. Yeah, it's not just getting the sacks. And the hits, it's it's getting your hands up and, and getting batted balls because batted balls turn into interceptions. We all know how important interceptions and turnovers are to to defensive success. So, yeah, that is a big part of it. And that just goes back to the line about Aaron Donald's awesome because that, that just goes back to what I said where I would take this this year's group over last year's just based – the cornerback group just based on the, the defensive line alone. It's, it is going to be interesting to see because they, they did not go get – I mean, Tyler Shelvin is – kind of in the DJ reader mode. They did not go get the three technique we thought they would in the draft, but you, you, they've got guys they think they can put inside, whether it's Wyatt Hubert or Cam Sample. And and there's still we, – we, we talk about this often. There's still guys out there on the street, and there are still open spots on this roster. It's the, it's the hole I see. It, it's, it's the hole that I see on this roster. Mm-hmm. As you look at what – people asked, asked a lot in the Q&A that I did on Friday. What do you, you – know, what, what can they do? What are they going to do? Are they done? I, I think that they need another three technique. I, I, you know, I think they've got to find one of these veteran guys to come in and be rotational. I mean, I, I, they've got money to do it. It's a, it's a, it's, to me, it's a glaring spot on the roster that's just kind of missing – we saw them do this with Mike Daniels last year. If you're looking for history to repeat itself, where he signed in late July, um, it feels to me like they need to do that again, and we'll see. 
where that lands. I didn't, I, as we said, people, oh, what did Gino come back? I, I do not anticipate Gino Atkins coming back. We've been saying that for a while, but you know, can I can I say Jarrell Casey's name every podcast? <laughs> I, I mean, I just can't see a better fit. Yeah, what are they waiting? I for? mean, there's just no better fit out there um, that makes sense coming in here if they can find a way to just to go get him and put him in the rotation and and try to get something out of it. Um, you know, or or maybe there's a trade that occurs. When I mean, we saw them trade for Christian Covington last year at the end to come in, now he didn't provide much, but somebody who can bring you something that's maybe on the back end of somebody else's loaded roster. Maybe they do that again. But, yeah, it's to me it's the hole. To me it's the hole that exists. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap it up here. Um, reminder, we'll be back next Tuesday, another week of OTAs. Uh, next week, the Tuesday one of is open to the media, so we'll be in there again and then some Zooms with a smattering of players. We'll see who, who ends up rolling into there. And then the mini camp is the week after that, which is the 15th to the 17th. It's essentially two practice days, which will be very similar to the ones that you've seen here, and then one that's kind of going to be very almost like a walkthrough of situational football stuff. So um, not a you know a couple of days really. So we'll kind of have a wrap up with that, and then the then the off season is wrapped, and everybody's going to disappear. Everybody's going to take vacations, things like that. And they'll come back for the start of training camp. July 27th is set sort of as that day that a lot for reporting day. And then probably we'll see them on the field the 29th. Uh, but all that's coming the end of July. So that's that's the schedule as it stands. We'll keep coming to you. We've got lots of fun stuff planned for you over the duration of that time. So, uh, all right, Jay, did we cover it all? I think we did. Yeah. We, we, we covered a lot for an off-season podcast. Look, we can talk. We can. We can we can talk. We we developed a tiering system for offensive linemen. You know, <laughs> I think that I think that can be utilized going forward. We've got a lot out there, so we plenty to do. We'll we'll, uh, we'll be back next week and we'll talk more about whatever we got going on. So thanks everybody for listening. We will uh, we'll talk to you next time we hear the podcast ground. Have a good one, everybody.